I thank God for all who have led us so beautifully in worship today as we conclude a sermon series called Epiphanies. Next week, we plan to begin a sermon series for Lent on the seven last sayings of Christ from the cross. But today, we'll finish the Epiphany series by looking at Isaiah chapter 58. I'll read verses 1 through 10 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is The Nature of True Devotion. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The question permeating our passage goes straight to the core of spiritual commitment. What constitutes the authentic activity of the people of God? What practice befits bona fide believers? What does true devotion to God look like? At stake in this inquiry is nothing less than the content of godly living, the substance of legit spirituality, and the evidence of genuine religion. Many assume that 
participation in ritual worship is what distinguishes God's people. This seems sensible enough. In Isaiah's time, believers went to a place of worship, assembled with others, offered animal sacrifices, observed special days and holy festivals, said prayers and sang songs, and studied to learn more about God. Not everyone participated in these activities, but the Israelites did in hopes of honoring the Lord. Quite similarly, modern-day believers go to a place of worship, assemble with others, bring offerings, observe special days and holy seasons, say prayers and sing songs, and study to learn more about God. It might appear then that in both ancient and modern contexts, participation in ritual or ceremonial worship defines the nature of true devotion. But not so fast. The prophet Isaiah calls this assumption into question when he says the people are seeking God and sinning. In other words, they are participating in worship and rebelling against God. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins, says the prophet. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways. What kind of puzzling paradox is this? How can it be that the very people who are seeking God, studying God, praising God, bringing offerings, saying prayers, singing hymns, and worshiping the Lord are simultaneously sinning and rebelling against God. The problem, says Isaiah, is that they pour out all this piety as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness. The word righteousness jumps off the page like a grasshopper. Righteousness is important because it's one of two main concepts that the Hebrew prophets constantly emphasized. The other is justice. Righteousness and justice go together like a pair of shoes. Both are attributes of God. The Lord is righteous, says Psalm 11. The Lord is a God of justice, says Isaiah 30. These twin characteristics of God are also guiding principles for social ethics. To practice righteousness and justice is to treat people with dignity, equity, and compassion, especially persons who are economically disadvantaged or socially marginalized. To practice righteousness and justice is not an exercise in condescending charity, but an exercise in human mutuality and human equality with attention to persons who are overburdened or underprivileged. The reason Isaiah decries the people's worship is that they have neglected righteousness and justice in their social relations. Their acts of piety are devoid of social consciousness. Their ritual activity is ethically empty. Although they are punctiliously pious and respectably religious, their worship reflects the choreography of hypocrisy 
rather than the authenticity of devotion. According to Isaiah, the moral dimension of spiritual devotion is decisive. The moral substance of faith must not be lost beneath a pile of traditional pieties. The moral compass of faith must not be misplaced amid a maze of institutional ritual. The problem is that the people are going to worship and seeking God and attending Bible study and participating in small groups and doing their daily devotions, yet are unrighteous in their social conduct. Specifically, they are fasting while oppressing their employees. Any act of piety paired with the practice of oppression is phony. Any spirituality that props its practitioners up on the backs of the poor is out of bounds. Look, says Isaiah, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Evidently, the spiritual discipline of self-denial had become a masquerade for self-service. The people were fasting in hopes that God would do what they wanted. It's like kneeling to pray only so God might grant our requests. It's like attending church only so God might do us a favor. It's an I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine approach to relating to God. It's more about bargaining chips than a relationship. As Bible scholar Alec Motyer points out, this reflects a Canaanite mentality rather than an Israelite mentality. The ancient Canaanites believed in a whole pantheon of gods, and the essence of Canaanite religion, writes Motyer, was to put the gods under pressure to perform their functions. In other words, the ancient Canaanites kind of turned religious devotion into a spiritual gumball machine where you insert a quarter to get a little prize from the heavens. But the Israelites, at their best, undertook spiritual acts in gratitude to the God who had saved them. They practiced spiritual devotion in love and loyalty to the God who had been so loving and loyal to them. Their piety was a reaction to God's grace, not a pretense for their own desires. They sought to do God's will, not to have God do their will. This is the only appropriate way to relate to God. While it's perfectly appropriate to ask God for help with certain things and perfectly appropriate to express to God the, the desires of our hearts, the proper overarching mindset is to serve the God who has saved us, not to attempt to use God as a tool for our own devices. God won't be played like that anyhow. God is not a means to an end. There is nothing we can do to put God in our debt or obligate God to do anything on our behalf. God is gloriously free, ultimately sovereign, and can do as God sees fit, regardless of our fasting, prayers, worship, and so on. 
The God revealed in the Bible is not a genie in a bottle who grants our wishes, but a parent in heaven who summons our obedience as beloved children. The God revealed in the Bible is not an errand boy at our command, but an almighty Savior who deserves our devotion as beneficiaries of divine grace. In short, God does not exist to serve our interests. We exist to serve God's interests. And it turns out that God is keenly interested in establishing righteousness and justice in human relations. God doesn't want believers fasting in order to curry divine favor, but in order to share food with the hungry. God is not interested in a spirituality of asceticism, but a spirituality of altruism. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? Notice that God desires liberation for those who are oppressed and relief for those who are burdened. When our church reaches out to the community to pay off a family's medical debt or to help a single parent purchase a vehicle, so a child can be transported to doctor's appointments, we are serving God's interests. Notice that God calls us to provide shelter for the homeless poor. When our church works with partners in the community to provide quality, affordable housing, or to help a mother and her children transition from life on the streets into a safe and warm shelter, we are serving God's interests. Notice that God calls us to share our bread with the hungry. When our church reaches out to distribute groceries and gift cards through our food ministry or to pack thousands of meals for persons in need through Rise Against Hunger or to offer a community dinner out in West Virginia, we are serving God's interests. These spiritual practices of righteousness and justice are not the hood ornament of faith. They're the engine. They're not the condiments of faith. They're the sandwich. They're not the appendix of faith. They're chapter one. They're not the screensaver of faith. They're the operating system. They're not an appendage of faith. They are the beating heart. Isaiah is not the only prophet to demand righteousness and justice in social relations over against empty ceremonial forms of worship. Amos 5 declares, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah 6 proclaims, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly? with your God, to practice all the pieties of institutional religion and all the many formalities of faith is vain, meaningless, even counterfeit, if unaccompanied by social consciousness. 
We cannot worship God authentically and be socially apathetic. We cannot honor God in the sanctuary and dishonor neighbors in society. In short, we cannot love God without loving people. (laughs) Not a hundred hymns, not a thousand sermons, Not a million prayers can please God if we are trampling the vulnerable underfoot or standing idly by as they are mistreated. Proverbs 14 says, Those who oppress the poor insult their maker. But those who are kind to the needy honor him. Christ himself says in Matthew 25, Just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. However we treat those who are hungry, thirsty, and homeless is how we treat Christ. Scorn for them is scorn for Christ. Indifference to them is indifference to Christ. Attention to them is attention to Christ. And love for them is love for Christ. The incontrovertible proof of true devotion is to intentionally glorify God by extending attentive love, compassionate justice, and godly righteousness to the least prominent members of society. I still remember the first time this dawned on me. It was my junior year of college, and I was involved in multiple Christian organizations on campus that challenged me to grow in personal devotion through daily prayer, Bible study, scripture memory, and sharing my faith with others. The emphasis on personal piety and evangelistic outreach was quite beneficial, yet it felt truncated, insufficient, as if something was being omitted. Until one day I sat in a religion class as the professor lectured about Mother Teresa's ministry to the destitute and dying on the streets of Calcutta, India. A remarkable ministry inspired largely by Christ's teaching in Matthew 25. Just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. During the lecture, An epiphany hit me like a sunrise breaking out inside my mind. I realized that Christian devotion is both personal and social. It's prayer, worship, study, and loving other people. It's seeking God in the sanctuary and seeking righteousness in society. It's spiritual piety and social consciousness. It's evangelistic outreach and moral activity. After all, the same Savior who said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of people, also said that he came to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and to let the oppressed go free. The same Savior who said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, also said, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. The same Savior who said, the greatest and foremost commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, also said, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A second is like it. Loving God is like loving your neighbor, and loving your neighbor is like loving God. 
loved when our witness combines love for God and love for neighbor, when our witness correlates ritual worship and social consciousness, when our witness connects sanctuary of piety with the pursuit of righteousness in society, we can then embody true devotion. The point is not to disparage worship in the least, but to ensure that it's invariably paired with robust social ethics. According to the Old Testament prophets and according to Jesus Christ himself, attending to people righteously is more important to God than routine religious ceremony. The distinguished Bible scholar Luke Timothy Johnson taught at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta for many years. During this time, he also cared for his wife, Joy, who experienced declining health over an extended period of time. Johnson was her primary caregiver. Although he secured six hours a day of outside care so that he could fulfill his academic responsibilities at Emory. One November day in 2008, Johnson was preaching a sermon during a worship service in Cannon Chapel on campus. And three minutes into his message, his cell phone rang. Only his wife, Joy, had his cell number, so he knew it had to be her calling. He paused his sermon and answered the phone. She said, honey, I need you now. He said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. Then he hung up the phone and said to the congregation, that was my wife. I must go home to help her. Immediately, he vacated the pulpit, exited the chapel, ran to his car, and drove home to his spouse. The congregation may have missed most of the sermon that day, but I have a hunch that they got the message. After years of studying Scripture, as one of the most prominent Bible scholars of the last century, Johnson understood that meeting human needs supersedes routine ritual worship in the eyes of God. He understood that loving people is a primary way that we love God. You and I might not get a phone call mid-service, but every Sunday when we leave this place, somebody somewhere needs some help. Every Sunday when we depart this place, we go from here on a mission. The only way for our worship to have the prophetic stamp of authenticity is for us to go forth to practice righteousness in social relations, to seek justice in the broader society, and to extend compassion to our neighbors with an attitude of equity, mutuality, humility, and love. This is, after all, the nature of true Christian devotion. Amen.